So as of last week, Jacob is now married to two women who are also sisters. He worked seven years for his uncle to marry the first woman, but his uncle switched the bride at his wedding, and he ended up marrying the older sister Leah rather than the younger sister Rachel. And now he is working for seven more years to pay off the second wedding. So he was married the first week, and then he was married again the second week, and we're going to see the fallout of that situation tonight. And we're going to see that Jacob, not just this week, but in the following week when we discuss his material blessing, Jacob is going to be abundantly blessed while he is in Laban's house. But it is not what you'd call a happy life. And I think we all can understand why just by hearing the beginning of the story. This family, as you might expect, was full of drama. And whatever joy Jacob might have gained by doing well at his profession, by being married to the woman of his dreams... And having lots of children, it's going to spoil his joy. And tonight is an important passage in the text of Scripture because this is the birth of the patriarchs, the 12 tribes. We're only going to get through 11 tonight, but the 11 and then 12 tribes of Israel. So it's an important passage, and it's also a joyful, glorious passage. But it's also a master class in how to lead an unhappy family life. And of course, through all of this, we're going to see the grace of God at work. And that's probably what we're going to focus on next week is, despite all of this mess, God is going to keep his promise and is going to bless Jacob. But for tonight, we're going to look at six keys to marital misery. If you are looking for a way to make your family and your marriage as miserable as possible, you've come to the right place. And of course, we're going to look at the opposite of those things too. But we're going to look at the way that these three people, and then eventually five, and then eventually many more, how they conducted themselves and how it is a recipe for how not to do it. So tonight is going to be about marriage. But if you are not married, whether you plan to be married someday or not, these are still lessons you can apply to almost every relationship you have. So this is an important, very practical, very down-to-earth kind of message. There's some, I guess you could call it dark or ironic humor in this story. But in the end, I, I think it'll help us know what to avoid in our own marriages. So let's begin by looking at verse 31 down to the end of the chapter, verse 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This section opens with the words, When the Lord saw. You're going to see a lot of that in this section. The Lord will see or remember somebody. And in the last section, we didn't see a whole lot of God. And that's usually a bad sign in the Bible stories, huh? When God is not active in what's going on, that's usually when things are going poorly. Leah, it says, was hated by Jacob. 
And you maybe can understand why. He thought he was marrying her younger sister, worked seven years for her, got probably a little too drunk at his wedding, woke up the next morning, and it was Leah and not Rachel. Not only that, he had loved Rachel. It said that the years he worked for her just felt like a few days because he loved her so much. And Leah, not just Leah, but Laban, her father, had ruined his great romance. And we might understand Jacob's point of view. We're probably more inclined to sympathize with Jacob and say, yeah, I, I see why he hated her. I can see why he was not too thrilled with his first wife. But aren't you glad, and we could talk a lot longer about this, and maybe we'll need to do that someday, aren't you glad that God is able to take a complex look at situations? We look at a situation and we say, who's in the wrong? All right, they're the bad guy and we're against them. God is able to look at a complicated situation and say, she was wrong to do that, but he was also wrong to do that. And this is horrible that this happened to him, but it's also bad that this is happening to her. And God is able to distribute grace in perfect wisdom and compassion. So he understands that Jacob was lied to and deceived. But he also sees this woman, Leah, who had been the liar and the deceiver. And he knew that a lifetime of misery is a hard price to pay for one sin, however great. One decision is going to ruin the rest of her life, having to live with a man who is her husband, who hates her, and not only hates her, but loves her sister, and probably lets her know that. And God is going to show compassion to Leah. I think we could learn a lesson from this about being compassionate even to somebody who was in the wrong and is paying the price for it. We don't want to be hard, ruthless people. We want to be gracious like the Lord is. So she begins to have children, while Rachel does not. And we're going to have a running list tonight of these children. So number one is Reuben. And this would have been pronounced Reuben. The B would be a V sound. And this means see, a son, or look, a son. Reu is like to see or behold, and Ben means son. So Reuben, or Reuben as we'd say it, is see, a son. The second one is Simeon which would have been pronounced Shimeon, as an S-H sound at the beginning, Shimeon. And the Hebrew word for hear is Shema, so you can hear it's in there. Shimeon means heard. And these words are not specific, like this is exactly what it means. They're almost like puns. It's a name that sort of sounds like the word that means this. So Shimeon means heard. Levi, or Levi, as it would be pronounced, comes from the word meaning to join or to attach. My husband will now be attached to me, she says. And number four, Judah means praise. It would be Yehuda. You maybe have heard of a man named Ben Yehuda, who was the, the Jew who brought back the Hebrew language to those living in the nation of Israel today. And there are memorials and streets named after Ben Yehuda, the same name. But we say Judah because we anglicize it and add the letter J. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. You, of course, know this. Levi is going to be the father of the priests in Israel, and Judah is going to be the father of the kings of Israel. But we'll come back to that much later. See how pathetic Leah's words are here. You feel bad for her as you read through the names of these children. It says, now my husband will love me because I gave him a son. The Lord knows that I'm hated. Now this is three sons. Now my, my husband will be attached to me. It's, it's sad. And this is why God pitied her. 
Maybe you know someone, or maybe you've even been in a loveless marriage or a loveless relationship of any kind. Proverbs 30, verse 23 tells us this, that the earth trembles and cannot bear up an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. The Bible says that's a hard, horrible thing when there is a woman in a relationship with a man who is not loved and is replaced by somebody else. So here's step one to an unhappy marriage. If you want to have an unhappy marriage, love other things more than your spouse. That's a great place to start. Love other things more than your spouse. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, they were both his wives, but he loved one more than the other. We are not polygamists in the United States of America, so this is less of a problem for us. But this could be anything. There could be anything that you love more than your husband or than your wife. This could be a job where if it comes to a collision between the job and your wife or your job and your husband, spouse is going to lose every single time. If it's got to be overtime, we're going to do overtime. We've got to move, we're going to move. We've got to have these people over that are rude to you, we're going to have them over. We've got to go to another one of those parties and put the kids off, we're going to do it. Loving a job more than your spouse or a hobby. Sometimes it's not the job, it's what you do when you get home from the job. This could be anything from video games to model airplanes to music to art to bird watching. I don't know. You pick. But there are spouses, husbands and wives, who get pushed to the side. A lot of times when a spouse starts to get really into exercising, she gets home from work and she heads straight to the gym and she's there the whole time and she comes back in the evening and it's late and she's really not in the mood to talk or he's not and they're tired. You've got to watch out for that. There can be friends that we love more than our spouse. And it generates jealousy because you show kindness and compassion and forgiveness to him or to her, but you come home and you have none of that for them. It can be the children. It can be the children. When a husband says something like, she loves those kids more than me, most of the time we roll our eyes and we say, give me a break. But that can be true. That very much can be true. We're a, a mother, usually, I'd say in this situation, be a mother, but it can be the father too, are so protective and overbearing for those children that dad gets shoved to the side and he's almost on the outside looking into his own family and he starts to resent not only his wife but his kids too. It can be a house. This house, fixing it up, making it just the way we want it. I don't have time for you, sweetheart. It can be an attitude. There's a reputation. There's a way you carry yourself. This is how I define myself. And I can't even drop the act even around you. It can be parents. Ooh, that's true, isn't it? We love our parents more than we love our husband or our wife. Dad comes around, he tells us what to do, and we jump right to it. He tells us, you've got to tell her this, and we do it. Or mom comes around. Mom tells us you're raising your kids wrong. She tells us you're doing this wrong. You're not taking care of me like you should. And we drop everything. And husband or wife gets pushed to the side every time. Genesis 2.24 says that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. We say in the marriage vows, forsaking all others, not just other men or other women, everything else for your spouse. Fail to do this, and it's going to make them miserable, and it's also going to arouse the sympathy of God. Is that something you really want? You want to be not loving your wife like you should or not loving your husband, and it gets God's attention, 
and God starts to have compassion on your wife or husband because of you, that's what happened to Jacob in this story. God's going to show compassion to Leah because Jacob is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, that you should dwell with your wife in understanding because your prayers can be hindered. You come to pray to God and God goes, why should I listen to you? Look at how you treat her. You're going to come and be all spiritual to me? I know how you talk to him when you get home. We are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And wives are to submit to their husbands like the church is in submission to Christ. That's what our relationships are to be, loving one another, putting each other first. And even some of those things that sound odd, well, shouldn't parents and children be somewhere in the mix? If you love your wife or your husband well and first, your children will love you better for it. Children will forgive a lot of issues if dad loves mommy or if mom respects dad. They'll forgive those things. And you become actually a better child to your parents if you're able to be separate and independent from them and have your own family and be able to take care of them as they grow old. So don't do that. Don't love other things more than your spouse like Jacob was doing to Leah because it's going to generate envy and jealousy as we're going to see in chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Maybe for the first time, huh? She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Rachel is barren and she becomes jealous. She was always the beautiful one. We saw this already, yeah? She was beautiful in form and appearance. Here comes Jacob and he's head over heels. He'll work 14 years for this girl. Now she's married and her sister is having children, and she's not. And she becomes envious. And she tries to put this on Jacob, do you see? Now it's saying, give me children or I shall die. This can mean one of two things. It can be, I'm going to die if I don't have kids, similar to how we say it today. It also could be an implicit threat of suicide here. What's the point of me living if I can't have children? Almost like how Job's wife told him to curse God and die. Because if I can't have kids, I'm just going to kill myself. Very manipulative and, and frustrating thing to say. Because Jacob has no power to give or withhold children from her. But she's angry at him and angry at her sister because of something that is in none of their control. Now you have an insoluble problem and Jacob is starting to get angry. These are the first fractures we see in the relationship between Jacob and Rachel. And they're only going to increase as the story goes on. So here's step number two to an unhappy family. Measure your worth by external things. If you want to have a miserable family life, measure your worth by things that are outside of you and your control. Rachel had what Leah wanted. She had the love of her husband and she had beauty. But Leah had what Rachel wanted. She had children. And so neither one of them was happy. Because they were not content with what they had. They were measuring their worth by what the other person had. Rachel, who had always measured herself by her beauty, now realizes that it's insufficient. So she begins to measure herself by how many children she can have. Leah, who is able to have children, is measuring herself by the affection and the love of her husband. Don't measure yourself by externalities. Children can be an externality. We're less concerned today about having 
a large number of children, but we can use our kids like as ways that we're going to try again. When I was a kid, I didn't know, but I know now, and so I'm going to do it through these kids. And they're going to be the best at sports, and they're going to be the smartest in the class, and they're going to be the coolest kid and wear all the nicest clothes. And I've even seen parents push their kids to date and to make themselves attractive in high school because they never had boyfriends and girlfriends in high school, but they want to see their kids do it. Measuring yourself by your kids. Measuring yourself by your salary. How much money I make. Isn't it always funny to see these athletes that are negotiating contracts for hundreds of millions of dollars? And because this guy's going to give me $430 million a year versus $425 million a year, I'm going to go over here. It's at a certain point, it's like, how many diamond-studded hot tubs can you possibly buy? And what it boils down to is my worth is measured by how much money I make, how big a contract I can get. And believe me, that's not limited to professional athletes. There are men and women that you and I know very well, maybe even sitting here, where everything is measured by the dollar, how much you bring in. And the guy over there makes more than you. And it just grinds on your spirit. Because you're like, I work harder and I do better, and one of these days I'm going to make what he makes. Or maybe it's a, it's a woman who's upset that she's not making as much as this man or that man, and so she's starting to Instead of being maybe upset over an, an injustice and an unfairness, it's because I deserve to have as much as them and be recognized as much as them, and it becomes a pride thing. Measuring yourself, like Rachel was doing, by beauty. There are women that do this. There are men that do this. Your entire identity is wrapped up in how you look. But there is an inevitable thing that happens that as you age, you do not look the same as you did. And so then what do you do when that starts to fade or to change? And I think we all have seen examples of men and women that cannot accept the fact that they're getting older. And so they keep on trying surgeries and dyeing the hair and wearing clothes that are way too young for them to try and keep just the way they were. And you, you start to get embarrassed for them. Because that's the only thing they know to define themselves by. Power is another thing. How many people am I overseeing? Am I in control of? Maybe it's not even a job thing. Maybe it's the homeowners association. Maybe everybody at the church knows you need my approval to do anything like that. Maybe it's applause. You love to play guitar. You love to sing. But you don't really love that. You love the applause that comes after. And if nobody was ever watching, you'd never sing again. Applause. When you measure your worth by an external thing, you are at the mercy of that thing. And when it's not there, it's lights out for you. You think to yourself, what's the point of even living? But the thing is, those things are so fleeting. And your spouse cannot provide those things for you. These are all things that your spouse can't give them. And so you make your life bitter because you are obsessed over having more of whatever it is. And some days you're up and some days you're down. Pastors will do this. Oh, there are so many people at the church today. I'm so happy. Let's go get ice cream. Oh, nobody came. I'm no good. I'm miserable. And now you're kicking the dog and yelling at your wife. And Isaiah 54. I'm not going to read this whole passage. I'll skip around. But it says this. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. 
For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. The Lord says, don't measure yourself by whether or not you've had children or been married or have a great salary or whatever it is. Measure yourself by my love for you. Your worth comes from the love of God. That's something that can never be touched, can never be shaken. That isn't go up and down depending on the situation or depending on the years or upon your performance. It's something outside of yourself. And because you know that God loves you, you can rest secure in that. And you're not going to be bounced around up and down. And we ought to show that same love to each other, by the way. You ought to be letting the love of God flow through you to your husband or to your wife so that he's not only resting secure in God's love, but in your love too. That's something we can do for one another. The things of this world are passing away. That's 1 John 2. The world is passing away and the lusts thereof. So don't put stock in those things. Don't define yourself by those things. Maybe you grew up and you were just good at that. And you found out that I was the best at that. Therefore, you define your whole identity around it. Or maybe you saw somebody else, maybe a big brother or sister. You saw your older sister was so beautiful. And she got all the boys' attention. So you think, I'm going to do everything I can to be just like that. And then you get older and life goes on and you realize this is so fleeting and it's so empty. How do I live now? Place your worth in what God can provide. And provide those same things to your family as well. That's not what Rachel's going to do, though. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go in to her, that she may give birth on my behalf. Literally, that's on my knees. That even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went in to her. So rather than saying something like, as long as the Lord is with us and as long as you love me, it doesn't matter if we have children. Instead, she says, here's my servant girl. Go sleep with her. She'll have children and we'll raise them as our children. This is exactly what Sarah did with Hagar. You remember Bilhah and the other one, Zilpah, were mentioned in the previous chapter and it almost seems like an afterthought. Well, this is why their names were put there. Bilhah is given to him, I've explained this already, as, as it says there, as a wife, really more as a concubine, but this, is, this was similar to an, an unmarried cohabitation. This wasn't just, oh, until we have a children and then no more. No, this was an ongoing relationship that they would have had with each other. Now, this was legal at the time, legal surrogacy. But as many things in Scripture that were technically legal, all things are lawful, but not all things are what? helpful. This is only going to produce more trouble, and in fact, a lot of trouble later on. But we'll get to that story later. Can you imagine? I want children so bad. Here, have sex with my servant. She'll have a kid, and we'll raise it like it's mine. Here's step number three to an unhappy family. Accept the world's values and the world's solutions. Rachel diagnosed her problem by the world's standards. She was thinking just like everybody else, thinking after the flesh, Paul would say, not thinking after the spirit. And she also accepted the world's solution to her problem. She didn't just say, by the world's standards, I've got a problem. She also went to the world and said, now how do I fix it? Rather than seeking the Lord like Rebecca did. Remember, Rebecca was barren for decades until they sought the Lord and the Lord provided her a child. She didn't learn the lesson of Sarah. Jacob's grandmother, who had tried this, 
and it went very, very badly. She diagnosed the problem by the world's values, and she accepted the world's solution to her problem. Have you brought the world's ways into your house? Do you all think after the flesh, or do you think after the spirit? The world's ideas about masculinity and femininity. The world's got all kinds of ideas about gender roles right now. It seems like they're changing every other day, doesn't it? And we say, oh, that's all crazy. But then we come back to what the word says, and we go, I don't know if I like that either. And now the dynamic between your husband and your, or your wife is, is so up in the air because you, you can't just stick with what the Bible has said. Maybe the Bible's ideas about sex or beauty and age. You bring the world's problems in. We referred to this one already. The Bible talks about it's, it's a glorious and grand thing to grow old. And yet we're scared to death of it. No, 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 no. I, I've got to still be like I was. I've still got I can suck in the gut like when I was 20 years old. It's okay. We're still there. Bring that, that issue and all that fear and all that scaredness into your house. The world's ideas about the Bible. Yeah, it's a good book. But, you know, you've also got to make your own decisions and live your own life. Or about entertainment. Yeah, I know what the Bible says about not putting unclean things in, garbage in, garbage out. But you know what? Everybody watches that show. Everybody listens to that music. I know the Bible says to be content with what you have, but really you should get as much as you can. Are you bringing in the world's values and the world's ways? Diagnosing your problems according to the world rather than what the word says? Don't introduce foreign agents. All these things God has taught us how to do well. He's taught us how to do marriage well. He's taught us how to have children well. He's taught us how to handle money well. He's taught us how to grow old and age well. So why do we want to go after the world? Is the world doing good with all this stuff? Let's look at marriage for a minute. The world just stands on a box and pontificates about how outdated traditional gender roles are and how marriage is a problem and blah, 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 and say, well, they, they must have it all together. Now let's turn and look at how they're handling marriage. Are the relationships between men and women doing better now than they ever have before? Are marriages doing better than they ever have? Are children being raised better? Of course not. It's fallen to pieces. So why trust them on that? Sort of like someone, your, your friend who has all kinds of ideas about how you ought to save and invest and use your money, and they're, they're broke. And they're always asking you for, for a loan to get through the next payday and stuff. And they come over and see the way you're doing it, and they say, yeah, well, you know, it's really not the best way to do it. You're going to go, respectfully, I don't care what you think. Because <laughs> you, you've shown that you really don't know what you're talking about. Same thing with the world. They can scoff and laugh all they want. And their marriages and their children and their, their families are falling to pieces. They're even saying things like, you know what, we really don't need family after all, do we? You can apply that across the board. Paul said to the Ephesians, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. I love that phrase because it applies so much. Where we're trying to live a certain way and has nothing to do with scripture. And you say, you didn't learn that from Jesus. You got that from some blog. 
I know what the Bible says about raising children, but I found a lot of really persuasive people online that have these very interesting ideas. I know what the Bible says about marriage, but that magazine I was reading, they, they've got some interesting thoughts on that. Oh, didn't you see this historian said that none of this is real, none of that matters, we've got to do it differently now? You bring all that into your marriage? You want to try and experiment with all these new ideas on your relationships? Or do you want to stay with what God has taught his people to do for generations? If for no other reason you teach your kids to be like the world, they're going to live like the world. You teach them that it's, it's fine to have a loose grip on the things of God and embrace as much of the world as you can. Eventually your kids will come to a point where they say, well then why am I even bothering to keep a loose grip on the things of God? I'm just going to go all the way over here. And maybe you've gotten a little older and you're less concerned about being accepted. You're starting to take the things of God more seriously, but now you've lost your kid because you raised them that way. And that's actually exactly what's going to happen to Bilhah. In chapter 35, we're going to see that she and Reuben are going to engage in an incestuous relationship with each other. All could have been avoided. Don't evaluate your marriage or your family based on the world's values, but on God's. God will tell you when there's a problem, and God will tell you how to fix it. Don't let other people tell you. Well, Rachel gave Jacob her servant girl. And Leah is not going to be outdone. So let's look at verse 5 down to verse 13 now. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Four more children. First, two from Bilhah, and then two from Zilpah. The servant or slave girls would be a better translation. So the children are number five. We have Dan. That comes from the Hebrew word din, which means to judge. So that's why she says God has judged me. The name Daniel means God. El is my judge, Dani. So that's what that name means. Number six is Naphtali. And that is how you pronounce that. I grew up saying Naphtali. But it is Naphtali, if you want to do it right. If you want to do it the other way, that's okay with me too. It comes from the Hebrew word pathal, which means to wrestle or struggle. The name Gad means fortune or luck. And the name Asher or Asher would be happy or blessed. There's that psalm where it says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. And that word blessed is Asherah, like Asher, means blessed or happy. And I think uh, the explanation for Naphtali's name says it all. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. This was a competition between sisters, husband in the middle, and all these kids. So step four to a terrible marriage, use your family as a tool of competition. You want to ruin your marriage and do it terribly? Do this. Use your family to compete. We saw this with Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob, and they used the kids in their schemes, in their backdoor dealings. We 
He saw with Jacob and his wives and Laban, who was sneaking around and using his family to get what he wanted. Now these kids are caught in the middle of it. Now these two servant girls, Bilhah and Zilpah, are caught in the middle of it. It's not going to go well. All polygamy is in the Bible. Yeah. How's it going? How's that working out for you, Jacob? How do we do this today? Well, we've talked about this before, so I don't want to dive into all of it again, but when you recruit kids against their parents... This happens in divorce situations, but it doesn't have to be that far. Mom's got her kid, dad's got his kid, and they're, they're using each other, and they snip and snipe at one another, and it's not good. Sometimes people will get married to spite a parent. And don't say that doesn't happen, because it does. I know my dad hates guys like this, so I'm going to go and marry him. I know my mom would freak out if I brought a girl like that home, so I'm going to bring a girl like that home. That happens. When you hold up your family as a status symbol, you're not a family, you're, you're, you're a team and you're trying to be the head coach. And you're badgering your kids to do better in school and to practice that violin and get it done and, and be better than the other neighbor kids. Don't you see how she's doing? Why can't you be more like that? Oh, but it doesn't have to be your kids either. It can be your spouse. It can be your wife. It can be your husband. Husband comes home, honey, we're going to go to this thing. All the company wives are going to be there. You've got to do something with your hair. You've got to dress up nice. I, I, can't, I can't take you out like this. Because if they look at you, they're going to think about me, and they're going to think that I'm no good because of the way you're looking right now. Let's go. Let's make this happen. Oh, we laugh. You think that doesn't happen? You don't think there's been a wife that's been pushed into plastic surgery against her will? You know that's happened. You do this to the kids, too. Pastors will do this to their kids, unfortunately. I had a great father. I grew up with a pastor's family, and most of the stuff that pastor's kids want to whine about their pastor's families, most of that is just whining. But there are pastors and churches that will use these kids and not let them live their own lives. And if the kid ever has the, the thought to confess something in the church in order to find healing, you can't do that because that will wreck the whole pastor's scheme and the whole thing and everything will all fall apart and now this guy's going to try and use it to take an advantage of you and parents will come and try and get in good with the kids so that way they can get in with the pastor's family and kids are sharp kids might not be able to articulate what's going on but they know what's going on especially when they get older and that's why you start seeing these kids act out sometimes this kind of thing is a surefire way to breed bitterness because everybody knows she knows he knows in the family dad only cares about us because we make him look good. Mom only wants us to be like this so that when she shows up with her friends, she can brag about us and seem like she's better than them. You've all got to cram in for the nice Instagram picture and then get right back to yelling at one another. Here's a horrible example of this in Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 16. Let me give you a little context. Absalom, Daniel's son, has or uh, David's son, excuse me, has staged a rebellion against him. He's staging a coup. David has had to flee from the city. Absalom has marched in. And Ahithophel was David's counselor who was advising Absalom in the rebellion. And they're thinking about how they're going to consolidate power and how they're going to cross the Rubicon, so to speak, point of no return. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. How sick is that? That is a sick thing to do. 
He says, what we're going to do, you are going to go have sex with your father's concubines because there's no coming back from that. There's no repairing the relationship after that. It's, it's a show of strength to your people. And they'll think, this guy's going all the way. We're never going back. We're not going to hang back and maybe come to a peace settlement. But not only is that what's going on, Absalom hated his father because David had not stepped in when another one of David's sons, Amnon, had raped one of his daughters, Tamar, Absalom's full sister. And so Absalom hated his father and staged this coup. And Ahithophel was the father of Bathsheba, whom David, of course, you know, had abused. So Ahithophel is using Absalom to get back at David. You see this whole family is using one another to compete and attack and fight with one another? The family is not to be that. It's to be the one place where we're united and loyal to one another. The one place where we're going to overlook faults and overlook shortcomings. The one place we're going to learn to put aside our differences. The one place we're never going to say, well, I guess we're never seeing them again. Malachi 2.15 tells us God has ordained the family for his glory. That when a husband and a wife come together, the Holy Spirit is in their union. It's not just physical, it's spiritual. That we have children so that God can have godly offspring on the earth. We become so individualistic that the family is either a hindrance to living my best life or they're a tool to accomplish the things that I want. Both of those things are wrong. We're a family. You're supposed to love your family and respect and be kind and gracious to your family. Not to compete with one another and certainly not to use one another in your competition. Using your family as a competition with your brother. You're going to show up your dad who never thought you'd amount to anything. So you're always cracking the whip on your kids to make sure they shape up. You do that, everyone is going to start to feel used because they're being used. And they're going to be resentful. And it's going to lead to a big smash up later. So don't do this. Love one another like you should. Not wrestling and competing. Oh, you're going to get your servant in on the game? I'm going to get mine in on it too. And I'm, you're going to have two more kids? I'm going to have two more kids. Verse 14. This is an interesting little section here. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Mandrakes. Mandrakes are a part of the potato and tomato family. They are poisonous in certain doses, but they are also nice smelling. The fruit is okay to eat, and they can be used as a perfume. And you can see, there's a picture on the right-hand side there, the roots sort of look like a person. And you can look up more pictures and see this, that 
it's almost uncanny how much they look like a person. So there's a lot of superstitions that surround them. Song of Solomon 7.13, when it's describing the bridal chamber, says that the mandrake perfume, is the smell is filling the room. The Hebrew name for mandrake is dudaim, and it's related to the Hebrew word for love, which is dodim. So they're called love apples sometimes. They were considered to be an aphrodisiac, or they were supposed to be useful for fertility, which is why Rachel wants them. So this makes a little more sense when you see the story now, right? So Reuben finds in the field mandrakes, which are supposed to help a woman conceive, and Rachel wants them because they're rare and she wants to have a child. And so she strikes a bargain with Leah. And do you see what she says there? She says, and he may lie with you tonight. Why had Leah not had any more children? It seems as if Rachel had forbidden Jacob to give his conjugal rights to Leah. To now where she needs her sister's permission to have sex with her husband. Can you see how Jacob, by the way, this isn't going to be a major point, but how Jacob really seems unable to stand up to a strong woman in his life? A very common thing, and it's not a manly thing, gentlemen. You've got to be able to do what is right, even in the face of your wife or your mother or whoever it is. A lot of times guys are so good, we'll not let any man push us around and tell us what to do, but a woman begins to speak strongly to us or, or cry, and we just fall to pieces. Jacob should have said, absolutely not, Rachel. You, you don't get to dictate that to me. But he did not. So she hires out her husband for the night. And do you see how she goes out? It says she goes out to the field to meet him when he's coming in with all the men. Why? Because she wants it to be known in front of all these people, this is the deal I made so that Jacob cannot renege on that promise. And she has a son. And she actually has another son and then a daughter, so it seems that normal husband and wife relations resumed after this. Child number nine is Issachar, which means wages or hire, because she had, the wages had been paid for giving up her servant, also because she hired her husband that night with the mandrakes. And you would have pronounced that Yisachar, so with a Y at the beginning, Yisachar, and the CH sound in there, you can see that. She has another son named Zebulun, which means honor. Now my husband will honor me. And that would have been pronounced Zevulun. A little different than Zebulun, but I don't know if I can get used to saying Zevulun. And then, of course, Dinah, or Dina, is how it would have been pronounced. And this is actually the feminine form of the name Dan. So they both mean judge. They come from the same word, Dean. You add ah, and it makes it feminine. So it's sort of like Michael and Michelle, I guess you could say. Dan and Dina. But what a sordid story this is. It's almost uncomfortable to read it, isn't it? Leah has to bargain for conjugal rights with her husband. So here's our fifth step. If you want to have a miserable marriage, make your spouse earn what is rightfully theirs. Make your spouse earn what is theirs. And specifically, we are talking about conjugal rights. Sexual rights, to be clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. This is an incredibly down-to-earth, practical passage that we need to know well, Christians. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. How dare you say that? We'll keep reading. 
Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If there is a more practical lesson in the Bible, I don't know if I know of one. Paul, to put it in very plain English, is saying, if you are married, you should be regularly having sexual relations with one another. That's in the Bible. You are commanded to do that. This is a critical part of a good relationship. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the husband not only leaves his father and mother, he cleaves unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Lord saw this and said that it was good. Don't mess with it. One partner should not withhold themselves sexually from the other, but out of love should remain available and desirable to their husband or wife. Now, we're going to go ahead and go there. Most often, in my experience and also just in, in common understanding, the partner that tends to withhold from the other is the wife withholding from the husband. Now, are there examples where that is a problem? Yes. But let's, let's talk about this because this is a very common situation that I've seen play out many times. Men, as a rule, as a whole, are typically more physical than women are. For a woman, typically, I'm going to stop saying typically. I think you all understand that I mean that there are exceptions to this rule here. But for a woman, it's, the emotional intimacy can be more important than the physical intimacy. And many women reach a place where they no longer feel like they need the physical intimacy anymore. It becomes a hassle, it becomes a bother. And they will say things like, we feel that our relationship has grown beyond the need for this. Meanwhile, the husband is growing angry and bitter. Because it's not just an emotional thing for him, but it is much more physical. And that we, we, we start in, our, in the relationship and in the marriage pitting love and sex against each other as if they're different things. He doesn't love me. I've had this in counseling. He doesn't love me. All he ever wants to do is have sex. And the man will say, that is how I demonstrate that I love you. No, you don't. It's just all physical and carnal for you. And there's a fundamental misunderstanding. But Paul got this. The Bible understood this. If you are married, you do not have the right to say no to your husband or wife. And I'm not talking every single instance, but I'm talking about over time. Paul tells you right here, you do not have rights to your own body. Well, we're older now. It's not like it was when we were young. Don't be too sure. This, ladies and gentlemen, is where many, many affairs come from. This is where pornography addictions can come from. Usually it goes the way we've been describing. The wife thinks everything is fine, doesn't really feel the need to do this anymore. Meanwhile, he's at home. He may be older, but he has not changed in this regard. His wife is no longer available to him. He is made to feel bad every time he wants to be intimate with his wife. She pushes him away. It becomes a hassle. So what does he do with all of this drive and energy that is God-given and good inside of him? Well, he begins to sin. He begins to lust. He begins to flirt. He begins to look at internet pornography. He even sometimes will commit adultery. And what happens? The sin comes out. The affair is made known. The pornography is exposed, whatever it is. And everyone reacts to that. 
How dare he? That's so wrong. He's so awful. He's so terrible. And the man, why does it go this way? Have you seen this? Often the man who has cheated gets bitter and angry at everybody else. And we say, where did this come from? Why is he so angry? He knows this is wrong because it wasn't just one moment. It was building up from years and sometimes decades of frustration. And it would have been, it was equally wrong for the wife to deny those rights to her husband. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 5.15 to drink from your own cistern. It means don't go elsewhere. Delight yourself in the bride of your youth. But when the bride denies that to her husband, he's got to control himself, yes. But that was wrong for her to place him under temptation. And this can go the other way too. Sometimes men just grow up and they don't really see the need to be physical and intimate with their wife anymore. And she still feels neglected and abandoned, so she starts to look elsewhere. The Bible is very, very pro-sex within marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage bed remain undefiled. And I know this is uncomfortable. I know this is uncomfortable to talk about. But you need to understand how, how isn't this so practical? We talk about preserving marriages and keeping them together. I have very rarely seen an instance where there are major emotional problems in a marriage where there is not also something wrong here. Read the Song of Solomon. It talks about this. It talks about when the husband was seeking after his wife and she says, no, I'm tired. I've gone to bed. I don't want to get up. I've already laid down. And then there's a moment where she goes after him and he's not there anymore. He stops looking for her. He stops seeking her. And then she runs out in the streets trying to find him and she can't. This happens. You say no so long when you're finally ready to say yes, he or she has already found somewhere else to go. Well, that doesn't seem very romantic. No, but it's very spiritual. Take care of one another. Husband, you are to be her safeguard against sexual temptation. Wife, same thing for you. You guys have got to keep that conversation alive. You've also got to make sure that you are remaining desirable to one another as a husband and a wife. Withholding sex to get what you want is a sin, Christian. It is a sin to do that. Forcing the other to beg or to be shamed for wanting this is a sin. You do not have the right to withhold this. And because what happens is the person that is less inclined to be sexual in the relationship becomes the one who dictates the status of the relationship. So now they're happy, but the other person is profoundly unhappy. And it becomes a measure of control. It becomes a measure of getting what you want in other areas, and it breeds bitterness, and it leads to sexual immorality. Well, he shouldn't have cheated. Yes, but there were many, many red flags that you passed before you got there. She shouldn't have gone after that guy. Yeah, but were you taking care of her? And this can be applied to so many other areas, withholding affection from your wife or your spouse, withholding conversation and being emotionally intimate. But this is the point that we have here. Jacob was putting his wife in the position where she had to trick and bargain and haggle for her rights to her husband. So many terrible stories could have been avoided if this area had been carefully guarded. So I know this is uncomfortable, but guys, when our men's groups get together, when our women's groups get together, we got to talk about this kind of stuff. These are the real gut level down on the ground stuff we need to discuss and there have been times where I've been in counseling where someone will say, we're just having a hard time and it's not really going well and I don't really know where we lost it. And I asked that question. I said, 
what, what's going on? How, how are the marriage relations? How is the sex life going? You shouldn't ask about that. Well, no, it's connected. It's in the Bible because the Lord knows it's connected. And if you are unable to have a conversation about this kind of thing with your spouse, guys, tonight is the night to have that conversation. Well, it might be uncomfortable. Yeah, probably will be. But it's too important to ignore. Let's move on now to verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. There we see the Lord stepping in again. God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Finally, Rachel has a son when God takes pity on her. Why do you think God waited so long? Could have been that she was awful in this whole situation. That she was awful to her sister, awful to her husband. And the Lord is like, I'm not about to reward that. It also could be, this is an interesting thought, for her own safety. She has Joseph, but she's going to die the next time she has a child. It could be that the Lord knew that. The Lord is looking out for her. But this is son number 11. This is Joseph, would have been pronounced Yosef, which means to add. The Lord will add another son. How would you like to name your kid that? Like, this, is, this is only round one. There's going to be more. We're going to see, of course, a lot more of Joseph later. He's going to be the fourth major patriarch that we follow. Because Rachel was not content with Joseph. And this is our last point. Number six, if you want to have a terrible marriage, refuse to be happy with your own blessings. When you can't love your own life, but you're always looking for the next job, you can't be happy now. We'll be happy later when the job situation works out. When I get promoted, then we'll be happy. Oh, when we move into the next house, then we can be happy and then we can relax. The next experience, whatever it is, you'll be miserable. If you're always looking for the next thing and you cannot enjoy and be blessed with what God has given you now. If you're not content with a little, you won't be content with a lot. It's interesting. We talk about greed and we usually think of rich people. But most of the greedy people I've known have been the people who are broke. And they're obsessed with money. And they'll do anything to get another dollar. And they'll sell anybody out. And they'll do any get-rich-quick scheme in order to get a few bucks. They're greedy. Now, granted, I've known way more poor people than rich people because that's just kind of been my life. <laughs> but it's still true. Don't think just because you don't have something, you're, you're somehow immune to that sin. Some people will scratch and claw their whole life to achieve. And listen, there's nothing wrong with working hard and excelling and doing great. But when you scratch and claw and you achieve and you just can't even enjoy what you achieve, there's a problem. You're desperate to get that thing, and then you get it, and you drop it, and you're desperate for the next thing, and you get it, and you throw it over your shoulder. The Bible tells us to be happy with what we have, to enjoy it. It says, take delight in what you've got, and then work hard. If you want to increase that, Proverbs especially, says, go out and work hard. But you know what? Be happy with what you have now. Be laying the groundwork for later. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. I love these verses. In the middle of his whole meditation on how unfair life is, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I love that. Solomon goes, if you feel like all you do is a workaday life, and you're beaten down by the sun, and then you come home, he says, take delight in your life. Eat and drink and enjoy your life. And if you're rich and you've got possessions and power, he says, enjoy that too. He says, if you can take delight in what you have now, it says, you will not much remember the days of your life. Meaning, you won't remember the hard times. You'll remember the good times. Because you were able to take those small moments, maybe, in the middle of the bigger problem and enjoy it. In your family, don't put your dissatisfactions on everyone else. Dad, if you're just desperate for that next position and that next thing, leave it in the car. Don't bring it in and, and throw that all over your kids, and then now they've got to bear that burden too. Mom, if you're working or if you're going back to school or if you're working on some project and you're just not happy and everything is going wrong, don't come home and be all miserable and petty and putting that on everybody else. Let your family bring you joy so that whether the blessings come or not, you can be content. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul tells Timothy, he says, let the rich people enjoy what they've got. Just don't put your trust in it. If you lose it, okay, great. Because you're putting your joy in something else. And you know, achievements are usually so anticlimactic, aren't they? You work so hard for something, we're going to graduate, we're going to get married, we're going to have a kid, we're going to get a job, we're going to get a raise, and you get it and you go, well, that this just kind of happened. I find that I don't usually get excited about achievements until a few days later. It's like, hey, hey, we did it. It's like, yeah, it was a few days ago, don't you remember? Unless there's like a ceremony or something like that. So don't live for those achievements. Commit yourself to the daily process of life, the labor under the sun, as Solomon says. Rachel couldn't enjoy her little boy Joseph because she was already thinking about the next one. She finally got what she wanted, and it wasn't enough. She wanted more. She should have just taken the time to enjoy what was given to her and maybe prayed and dreamed and thought, I'd lo I would love to have another child. But I'm happy with what I have right now. She wasn't happy before she had a son. She won't happy after she got a son. And she's not going to be happy after that either. Jesus promised us in John 10.10 10, an abundant life. Not a prosperous one as we would define it in the flesh, but an abundant one. And that starts by shrinking your world a little bit. I'm going to be concerned about everything going on everywhere all the time. And all the possibilities and all the negatives and everything that's going on. No, no, no. How about you rejoice in the family that you've got, that you're sitting down at a dinner table and you've got a few little hands that are spilling milk all over your table and causing trouble and you're laughing at it and you're making these memories that are going to be great later. Just enjoy that. Take the time. I love to do this. I'll do this before church starts. I probably drive some of y'all crazy. Where I'll just be like, hey, let's just stop and be happy that we're in a building. Because for a year, we were not. And we were always so excited. One day, are we going to have a building in here? Or I'll be with my wife and... I'll see the kids running around, and I say, hey, let's stop for a second. We always used to talk about how we wanted to have a bunch of kids, and now we have them. Let's just be happy about that for a second. And every time I do that, people usually roll their eyes. Okay, fine, whatever. That's just my way of trying to practice that, just enjoying what's going on, shrinking your world and love what's in front of you. Once you do that, nobody can take the stuff away from you. Your boss wants to get in your face and you know, bully you over all the stuff he's going to take away. You're like, take it away, pal. It doesn't bother me. I'll get another job. I'll get more money. You're not the only one that has it. You're not the only one offering work. I'm going to go home and I'm going to be joyful there. Delight yourself in the blessings that you have now, not the ones that you want later on.
So those are our six steps to marital misery. If you want to be miserable in your marriage and in your family, it's a little broader than just marriage today, but number one, love something else more. Number two, measure your worth externally. Number three, appropriate the world's values. Let them tell you what's wrong and how to fix it. Number four, use your family to compete with one another. Number five, make your spouse earn their rights. Don't give them graciously. And number six, refuse to be happy with what you have. And I think you realize avoiding these things is not a bad place to start in enjoying the life that God's given to you. Will you turn with me to Psalm 127? We're going to end here. This is the family psalm. I love this one. There's so many levels of application. It's worth your time to meditate on it. But I think it applies for us here tonight too. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Family is a blessed thing, but as it says at the beginning, you've got to build it God's way. Don't do it the way the world's doing it. They don't know what they're doing. All, the, all these people that have broken marriages and are on their, their fourth go-round and have had all kinds of issues and troubles want to start writing books on marriage. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a counselor. I'm, I've been officially trained. And, of course, my own relationships are no good, but I'm really good at telling other people how to live. How about you just do what God said? It's so basic and simple. Nothing I said tonight was complicated. Let the Lord bring the joy to your life. You'll never miss what you do not have if you let the Lord teach you to delight in what is right in front of you. And really, guys, it's all about living the gospel day in and day out to one another. The Lord saw you and loved you unconditionally. Before you did anything right, he loved you. And it's also almost interesting because our way of courting and getting married has almost loses some of that metaphor because we get to choose who we marry. Back in the day, your mom and dad picked for you. So you had to choose to love them even before you met them. The Lord loved you and chose you. And he shows grace to you when you fail. And he loves you regardless of your performance. You've got to live that out for each other. Show grace to one another. Don't keep records of wrongs like 1 Corinthians 13 says. Believe all things, hope all things, be patient and kind. Now, you might be hearing this and say, I, I've done a lot of that stuff. I think I have some repenting to do. Good. That's a good thing. Recognizing you've been doing the wrong thing is a good thing because now you can turn and do the right thing. Start fresh today. Maybe you got an uncomfortable car ride home. That's all right. That's, that's the crucifixion of your flesh that's going to lead to the resurrection of your newness of life that comes afterwards. Well, God could never do that for my family. Listen, this family we just read about is worse than anything going on in this room, I'll tell you what. But God blessed him anyway because God is good and kinder than we are and more compassionate than we are. And he wants to bless your family, but he also wants to redeem your marriage and bring it back 
to where it should be. So if we don't keep God out, but we let him in to do what he's going to do, and let him show us how to live, and how to be married, and how to be a good parent, and lead a good family, then it's going to be all right.